This is disappointing and frustrating. Transit turmoil. I'm going to revert to probably an Uber or some other form of transportation. Commuters caught off guard by a strike. What it will take to get Metro Vancouver buses running again. Backlash over the handling of hospital discharges. What are you doing? What the health minister says about patients pushed off hospital property. And ruffled feathers over the price of chicken. British Columbians are actually uh, asked to pay way more. The proposal that puts farmers at odds with consumers. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We'll have more on those stories in just a moment, but we begin tonight with breaking news involving a helicopter crash. The tour company involved is Northern Escape Heli Skiing. Jordan Armstrong is live in our newsroom with breaking details. And Jordan, what have you learned so far? Chris, I can tell you the crash happened around four this afternoon in the mountains north of Terrace. We do not know if any distress call was sent out before then. The chopper was flying for a heli-skiing tour company, as you mentioned. At this hour, the emergency response is still very much ongoing. The tour company, Northern Escape, tells us by telephone that they are working to confirm how many people were on board and what their conditions are. We know the chopper is an Augusta A119 Koala model, similar to this one. It can carry up to eight people. The Joint Rescue Coordination Center in Victoria was notified of the crash at 4.30 and they have sent a Cormorant search helicopter from Comox to the Terrace area to assist. So as soon as we have any details on the people on board, we'll bring them to you here. Chris. Sounds good. Thank you very much, Jordan. All right, now to that commuter chaos in Metro Vancouver as a full-scale strike by transit supervisors kicked off this morning. Yeah, it's been a messy and hectic commute in pouring rain. Hundreds of thousands of people who take the bus or sea bus scrambling to make alternate plans. Grace Key is live with more on the toll it's taking and why the union is warning this could get worse, Grace. Yeah, we're just at the Vancouver Transit Centre in uh, on Hudson Street, where you can see behind me here some of the picketers have set up. But yeah, this is going to go on for 48 hours, and the union has said if something isn't resolved soon, they could certainly see an escalation in job action. Early Monday morning, a little confusion from passengers at Surrey Scott Road Bus Loop and at the North Vancouver Sea Bus Terminal. 300,000 people depend on the bus every day to get to school, work and appointments, all caught in the middle of a labour dispute. No, I didn't see any news, nothing, so... <laughs> I know, it's quite inconvenient. I just uh, think that maybe Sea Bus is working, but it's not. <laughs> Uh, I knew that there was a strike, but I took the C-Bus here last night, so I didn't think it was going to be impacted. QP 4500 workers walked off the job 3 a.m. Monday after Coast Mountain Bus Company and the union failed to reach a contract agreement over the weekend. The union represents 180 transit supervisors. A war of words between the two sides over pay and workload issues continued. We estimate that the ripple effect of the union's demands on other future contracts to be in the order of $250 million. That is $250 million on top of a $4.6 billion deficit over 10 years. In order to fix that wage discrepancy, it would cost them annually less than an additional 0.05% of their annual budget for salary, benefits, 
and wages. There's also the threat of a possible picket involving SkyTrain and the West Coast Express. Over the weekend, the union made an application to the Labor Relations Board stating the union is entitled to picket at or near places where allies perform work or furnish services for the benefit of the struck employer. A hearing has not been scheduled, so SkyTrain and West Coast Express are expected to run as normal. The strike is for 48 hours. Buses and sea buses should be back up Wednesday morning. The union will continue with its overtime ban and then consider its next move. Clearly we don't have a deal now, so we'll have to plan our next escalation. Obviously it's going to be uh, an escalation, which means more than the current one. All right. Do we know anything about the timing when the Labor Relations Board would hear the union's application? Yeah, we just got word that a hearing has been set for next Monday. So again, same as usual, there, there's going to be trans, uh, trans SkyTrain, there's going to be the West Coast Express, so you don't have to worry about that. Ultimately, it is the LRB who's going to have to make the decision on whether or not, you know, the, the union could extend its picketing to uh, the SkyTrain. So everyone's safe for now if you're driving, if you do ride the SkyTrain. Chris? Status quo for at least another week, it sounds like. Okay, thanks very much, Grace. All right, let's bring in Keith Baldry for more on this. And Keith, there is a push for people to get out of their cars and take more mm -hmm. transit. So this does raise the question, if you want people to take transit, if you're building transit hubs, uh, uh, housing around transit, why isn't it a, an essential service? Yes, indeed. So essential services traditionally uh, defined as protecting life or limb, not commuting, not getting to work, not going shopping or anything like that. But many people do take SkyTrain to go to medical appointments. So the LRB at some point may rule on essential service levels. So that's something Kevin Falcon, the leader of the BC United Party, raised today, saying the government should essentially make a preemptive strike and set those levels right now before anything, any more job action occurs. Harry Baines, the Labour Minister, responded, well, they already have the mechanism. It's called the Labour Board and the Labour Act. Here's the two of them. What they need to do is establish minimal levels of service because it is an essential service. And that way, while there's an ongoing dispute taking place, the public is still being served. In the absence of that, government will be forced to use the heavy hammer of legislation. Certainly, that's the last tool you want to use. That option is available now under the code. Parties can reach out to the Labour Board and they put their cases together and uh, uh, and uh, uh, declare certain areas of this uh, service as essential service. It has happened. It happens all the time. So labor officials tell me today they expect the LRB, if they face such a scenario of having both sides presenting essential service levels, will make a decision very quickly and likely allow a picket line to go around a SkyTrain station or stop because, again, life or limb has to be protected. And many people use transit and use SkyTrain to go to medical appointments. That fits the definition of what is an essential service. All right, we'll see how it develops. Keith, thank you. All right, on that point, today's transit strike has left hundreds of thousands of Metro Vancouver commuters scrambling to find another way to get where they need to go. And it's often been a much more expensive alternative. Cassidy Moscone is live with more on what has been a costly day for some commuters who don't have the option to drive. Cassidy. Yeah, well, Sophie, we're definitely in the middle of the evening commute here. The SkyTrains, they're up and running, but the buses, they are out of action. If I were to call an Uber from here, uh, commercial and Broadway, down to, say, Kitsilano, it would cost me about $20 on rideshare platforms right now. It was about the same last hour, but still that price is six times what it would cost me to take the bus. 
In a transit workers' strike, it's the commuters who pay the price. Food prices are high right now, so $30 just to get to the 92. How long is that ride, do you think? I think it's about two or three kilometers only. Just going to try to find an Uber, which is impossible, and it's $60 just to, li- just to go across. Yeah, it's unbelievable. With buses out of action, travellers are out of options. Many looking to rideshare platforms with surging prices. Our payroll person lives in the North Shore and we're in downtown Vancouver. And it was just under $200. The work is here, it has to get done. In a statement, an Uber spokesperson told Global News between 7 and 8 Monday morning, the number of active drivers was up more than 70% compared to the same time last week in Metro Vancouver, adding Uber has capped surge pricing and offered additional incentives to drivers, but it wouldn't confirm what the surge was capped at. Taxi drivers say it was one of their busier mornings. The taxi driver will not charge you more than a penny even what is on the meter. So you can rest sure, whatever you see, that's what you pay. Evo use up too. The car share platform recording an immediate 30% increase in trips Monday morning with a 50% increase in new member sign-ups. I'm told Evo has also been relocating some of its share vehicles to SkyTrain stations like this one to help people get to where they need to go. Lyft also confirming to us they've implemented a prime time cap to help contain those prices and commuters just should be bracing for similar scenes tomorrow. Chris and Sophie. All right, thanks for that. Cassidy Moscone reporting live tonight. And more fallout now after Global News reported patients, some in obvious distress, are being discharged from hospitals and left at nearby bus stops or benches. BC's health minister is responding tonight, and Kristen Robinson has his reaction to the complaints. What are you doing? Hours after a Victoria resident voiced concerns about Royal Jubilee patients being left at a bus stop, she witnessed hospital security bring another person in apparent distress here. It's horrific that this is normalized. In Vancouver, Remy Cadrone says he's seen VGH security escort dozens of patients to a bench across the street. It's being used as a people dump. This issue of what happens to people when they leave the hospital is of central concern to everybody who works in a a hospital in BC. BC's health minister says our hospitals see 200,000 emergency room visits per month and he doesn't believe patients are being dumped outside. But those aggressive or abusive to staff may be escorted out. There are circumstances where a patient, for whatever reason, is being disruptive and uh, needs to leave. Since hospitals are not hotels or shelters, what options are there for staff when a person without a home is ready for discharge? Well, they often, ha- they often work with that person. They have lists of housing that might be available. There's a series of supports that can be given. Once you're determined you don't need to be there, including bus passes and taxi vouchers. Staff often check on shelter bed availability, says Adrian Dix, and social workers may also be involved in assisting people. You can't just dump people at a, at, at a, at a, a transit station or a bus stop. My goodness, especially if folks are struggling with mental health issues. Opposition leader Kevin Falcon says if he becomes premier, he'd legislate the limited use of involuntary treatment in modern facilities with 24-7 psychiatric and medical supports. When they're incapable of making decisions on their own, we have to make sure we're looking after them. 
Dick says people have rights and involuntary care is not necessarily a solution. <coughs> Meantime, Juliana says she helped this patient stay warm while another bystander called an ambulance, which returned the woman to Royal Jubilee Hospital. Kristen Robinson, Global News. We are finally hearing from the mayor of New Westminster about his controversial trip to the UN's COP28 Climate Action Conference in Dubai last month. But as Global's Janet Brown reports, at least one city councillor says there are still too many unanswered questions. I think it was a useful trip for the city. New Westminster Mayor Patrick Johnstone says it was important for him and a senior staff member to attend the COP28 Climate Action Conference in Dubai in December. The fact that New Westminster is invited to take part in this international conference, the fact that of the half dozen cities in Canada that were invited, I think it's a sign that we're doing good work. However, New Westminster Councillor Daniel Fontaine says nothing about how the trip was funded and organized seems to have followed the basic practices of openness and transparency. This is about the process for which he received funding to go on this trip, why council wasn't apprised of it, and the whole procedures and policies around this really concern me. And Fontaine says council was not asked to approve the trip. I'd like to see actually all the emails, I'd like to see all the text messages, all the information going back and forth between staff and the mayor's office, everything that led up to this trip. The mayor says the trip was sponsored by C40 Cities. Some of its funders and partners include L'Oreal, the group of companies that owns IKEA and Bloomberg Philanthropies. And Johnstone says he has nothing to hide, blogging about it while in Dubai. There has never been a policy or practice in the city where uh, a member of council has had to seek permission from other members of council to attend work that is germane to our work on council. For some reason, it's only climate action that causes certain members of council to be concerned about me taking part and representing the city. This has nothing to do about climate change and everything to do about the process and the policies and the procedures. And the trip will be on the agenda at the new West council meeting tonight, with Fontaine bringing forward a motion asking the mayor for a report on his travels. At the end of the day, the public should be paying close attention to this because it could have some serious ramifications to other members of council accepting these types of gifts and sponsorships and traveling all over the world. Janet Brown, Global News. Breaking free from broken appliances. We rely on them in our daily lives, but they die a lot sooner than many people expect. It's why repair technicians are pushing for Bill C-244, the right to repair bill, as fridges, washers and dryers and dishwashers all pile up for disposal. How it could be the fix we've been waiting for, next on the News Hour. Took us 38 days and I can't remember how many hours. The salty science rowers complete their grueling journey across the Atlantic Ocean. Why they did it later on the news hour. Plus. And you go into this incredible soaring groove, which is steep. A chill thrill. Climbing enthusiasts in Squamish loving these icy temperatures. We'll show you why coming up. Right now, though, chicken is a staple for many Canadians, but you might soon end up paying more for it. Farmers want to raise the price to cover their costs, but at least one group is pushing back. Paul Johnson has the details. Uh, chicken is a, a lean, healthy product that appears in about 80% of all menus. 
No surprise then that one of the trade groups representing restaurants in BC wants to push back on the possibility of a rise in the farm price of chicken. Our restaurants are just at a tipping point right now where we've got more than half the industries not making any money. In Canada, chicken is one of several agricultural products where the farm price is set not by supply and demand in the market, but by the government. In this case, the B.C. Chicken Marketing Board has asked for a 10% increase in the farm price of chicken. The board told Global it's not about booking more profit, but covering what they say are increased costs, primarily feed. Just a whole chicken per kilogram, it's about 51% more in B.C. compared to the national average. But food supply expert Sylvain Charlebois says British Columbians already have the priciest poultry in Canada. And he can empathize with restaurateurs who find our system frustrating and opaque. Supply management is supposed to stabilize prices, but based on what I'm looking right now, especially in BC, uh, prices haven't been all that stable in recent years. The BC Ministry of Agriculture confirmed that a price hike request has been made. And while they said they'll be listening to consumers and stakeholders, Von Schelwitz says even though restaurants consume 40% of the chicken raised here, they've been told their voice won't officially count. In this particular case, we were pretty frustrated that we actually looked to the, uh, uh, the Farm Industry Review Board and said, hey, we want to make uh, our arguments against a big price increase right now, and we are not allowed to even uh, um, present to the Farm Industry Review Board because of the way the whole process is set up. Paul Johnson, Global News. When household appliances break down, instead of repairing them, many consumers are forced to simply discard them. Expensive repairs and a lack of replacement parts are just some of the reasons they end up being tossed. But a bill currently before the Senate could help change that. With more, let's bring in Consumer Matters reporter Ann Drua. Anne? Thanks, Sophie. We hear from numerous consumers who are frustrated not only with their broken down appliances, but the difficulty getting them repaired. Many industry experts are hoping if Canada's right to repair bill receives final approval, it will help consumers and the environment. As a journeyman plumber, Chris Bomer says he's become increasingly frustrated with the number of trips he's making to the recycling depot hauling away broken down appliances that can't be fixed. Not very good for the environment, right? Not very good for us in general. Chris says he believes appliances aren't as durable as they used to be and says it's unacceptable and there needs to be a solution. If we had some sort of legislation forcing them to make the appliances not disposable, repairable instead. Right now, Bill C-244, known as Canada's Right to Repair Bill, is before the Senate waiting to be passed. It's a reform of the Copyright Act, which deals with technological protection measures, which, if passed, would give the consumer more freedom to access replacement parts and make repairs themselves. This bill would also enable me or you to hire an independent repair technician to undertake repairs on our behalf. Alyssa Sintavani is an assistant professor at the University of Western Ontario and advocate for the right to repair movement. 
She says products like appliances are not built to last, and manufacturers are making it difficult for consumers to fix products on their own, especially for computerized parts, which are often only available through the manufacturer. Fixing the things that we already have by, let's say, replacing a small component in one of our appliances, it should cost less, right, than replacing that item entirely. We train a technician through the entire Red Seal program. David Fingstad is the chair of the Kwantlen Polytechnic University's Appliance Service Technician Program. He too supports the right to repair legislation. He says technicians in the field are not getting enough repairable parts to help consumers. If we could make an assembly of this more cost efficient to repair, have more smaller individual parts, we could bring the cost down for the consumer. Yeah, then it would be avoiding the scrapyard. Reforming the Copyright Act is just one component of the right to repair movement, but supporters say it's a significant step forward in not only helping Canadians save money, but helping the environment. The longer we can extend the useful life of the things we already have and keep it out of the landfills, the better that's going to be for the environment. And just this past October, Quebec adopted right-to-repair legislation. Retailers or manufacturers bound by the warranty of availability must ensure parts, repair services, and information are available at a reasonable price for the product they sell in the province. And it must be possible to install replacement parts using everyday tools without causing irreversible damage. Right-to-repair supporters say this is a good example why we also need action at the provincial level. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. As usual, great stuff. Thank you, Anne. Still ahead, the new cap on international students. The federal government makes a major move to close an immigration loophole. And why high-profile BC United MLA Ellis Ross is leaving provincial politics. The federal government is bringing in new rules to limit the number of international students allowed to study in Canada. Richard Zussman tells us why the Trudeau government is doing it and who they're targeting. Moving day at post-secondary institutions may soon look very different. I've had productive conversations in particular with British Columbia and Ontario already and we all recognize that more needs to be done to protect the integrity of our system while supporting international students. The Canadian government imposing a national cap on international students, reducing intake by 35% over the next two years. Each province will choose how the cap is imposed. We're confident that our public uh, post-secondaries won't be as impacted by these, these caps. One thing that the minister did that I think is interesting and possibly smart is that he did Um, you know, require the provinces to determine how the study permits are going to be distributed. Post-secondary institutions like the University of Victoria rely heavily on money from international students. They are not sure yet what sort of impact this change will have, but there is a commitment from Minister Robinson that even if revenues drop, BC students will not be forced to pay more. People don't know the fine details of that. It could send a message that we not open. For example, at UBC, a BC resident commerce student pays a little more than $8,800 per year in tuition. International students pay $61,000 per year. Yeah, closed for good now there, right? The amount of international students is charged has led to a growing market of private academic institutions where the standards are unclear. 
And I've certainly been hearing stories of students, international students who have uh, been taken advantage of by uh, these, these uh, private post-secondary institutions. They're um, not delivered the product that they're told. And while the international students have been blamed for putting adding pressure on the existing housing stock and the healthcare system, the province believes the impact is minimal and will be announcing within a week a plan to crack down on these private programs without established standards. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Former B.C. Liberal leadership contender and current B.C. United MLA Ellis Ross is moving to federal politics as a conservative candidate. Opposition leader Pierre Polyev tweeted that the former Heisler Nation chief is running as a conservative for Skeena Bulkley Valley. In a statement, Ross confirmed he will run federally. He will continue, though, to sit as the B.C. United MLA for Skeena until the next provincial election. Up next, an anguished mother looking for answers. It's so hard to just move on without him, and I don't know what happened. The latest on her son's murder in Sparwood, and a man believed to be the last to see him alive. The mother of a Sparwood shooting victim is desperate for answers. Police have named a person of interest in her son's death, but it's still unsolved. As Catherine Urquhart reports tonight, she's hoping charges will bring some closure to his heartbroken family. He loved us and he cared about us so much and now it's just ripped away. It's so hard to just move on without him. Tony Zimbalotti desperately misses her 21-year-old son, Joel. In October, he was found shot to death inside his trailer in Sparwood. Your son, your baby, you know? I had him when I was young and I didn't... I just remember rocking him on this chair all the time and looking at him and thinking, I don't know much, but I know how much I love you. Joel's body was discovered by a friend. The panic, having to call his mother and tell her about what I found, it hurts. The RCMP have released the name and photo of a person of interest. Joshua Freeman, also known as Slim, was in the trailer at the time of the shooting and fled. A second man was arrested at the scene and released without charges. Joel's grieving mother says she's hopeful there will be charges in the case, along with answers as to why her son was killed. It's been a nightmare. You know, I'm never going to be the same. I'm never going to be the same. Joel had no criminal record, and his connection to Joshua Freeman remains unclear. Anyone with information about Freeman's whereabouts is urged to contact police. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. An impaired driver is facing the consequences after being caught driving the wrong way down Highway 1 on the upper levels. Just before 3 a.m. this morning, North Vancouver RCMP received reports of a white Kia traveling westbound in the eastbound lanes with a flat tire. Officers managed to stop the vehicle near the Westview Drive exit where they noticed signs of impairment in the driver. A Burnaby woman in her 30s failed a breathalyzer test. She was issued a 90-day immediate roadside prohibition and her vehicle was impounded for 30 days. An inquest has begun into a deadly fire in a downtown Vancouver SRO almost two years ago that killed two people. As Rumina Dea reports, the inquest heard emotional testimony from a relative of one of those who died. 
It was too great of a challenge for John to come to court and testify at the coroner's inquest into his mother's death. Instead, his cousin took the stand to be his voice. John and his mother surrounded by flames. No escape. The inquest jury heard how John's mother, 63-year-old Marianne Garlow, saved his life by encouraging him to jump from a third-story window. John shattered both his lower legs and spent roughly six months in hospital. His mother, who was recovering from a foot injury, missing for days. Garlow's body found in the rubble 11 days later, after the Winters Hotel was demolished by City of Vancouver crews. Misty Fredericks told the jury her cousin John was visibly upset when he told her there was chains on the door, the sprinklers didn't work, and there was no way out. He loves his mom and he misses her very much. The body of 53-year-old Dennis James Gay also discovered in the rubble 11 days after the fire, which is believed to have been sparked by a candle. Gay, described as an accomplished person and talented musician, suffered from hearing loss and mental health issues. His mother, father and sister in tears in the first row of the courtroom. A class action lawsuit was filed last year. Survivors still traumatized. As I left, I did not know that the screams that we're hearing were my friends dying. The key issue here is that there was another fire three days earlier and the fire department came, shut off the sprinkler system, the fire alarms weren't working. The inquest is expected to hear from 29 witnesses over nine days. Victims' families hoping recommendations will be made to better protect vulnerable citizens living in SROs and to properly care for them after such a catastrophe. Romina Dea, Global News. Coming up, four women complete the world's toughest row. One of the happiest moments I've ever experienced. The highs and lows of more than a month on the open ocean. And West Coast, West Coast ice climbers soar to new heights in the cold weather. Next. Some amazing pictures today from a couple of guys who are actually very happy to see our recent run of freezing weather, especially the ice. It looks really technical, actually. He calls it technical. Well, most of us would just call it terrifying. Tim Emmett and Luca Samaruga Malaguti capturing video of themselves climbing ice up the area known as Shooting Gallery, north of Squamish. This one is a 130-meter route they have dubbed Waterworld because despite the fact that it's frozen, there is still a lot of water flowing down. The two say it's not very often we get weather that's cold enough for long enough to get ice lines, they say, were every bit as good as the ones in the Rockies. I wonder how much of that is left today after a couple of days of rain and warmer temperatures as well. We'll bring in Christy now for the latest on the forecast. Christy? Thanks. Well, the, that really is the pattern change that we had from the extreme cold we saw last week and some excitement with the snow and ice. Clearly, we're right back into sort of normal uh, January weather, which means highs of 7, 8 degrees and rain on and off. So here's a look. Yes, in my opinion, a little dreary today without that ice and snow excitement. When you pull out, you can see that these systems move in from the southwest, keeping things milder across the south coast. Temperatures in the interior are good 4 to 5 degrees above seasonal, so lower in the valley bottom. 
bottoms, you're just looking at rainfall as well, but we are still expecting snowfall in the mountain passes. So keep that, that in mind if you're traveling. I wanted to point out there's a freezing rain warning right now in place for Kitimat. So that's just south of Terrace. Freezing rain warning for tonight into tomorrow morning and a winter storm warning for areas near Watson Lake with a, a prolonged period of snowfall expected. Now, the air quality statement is still in place for northern Metro Vancouver, but I want you to let, let you know that the risk is low according to Metro Vancouver Air Quality Health Index. So mostly at a level two across the region, it is the northwestern portions that are at a level three, and it's not expected to get any worse. So the rainfall will help that air quality as well as we continue to see it. Now, tomorrow afternoon, we may see a little bit of a break across the south coast. So uh, east coast of Vancouver Island, southwestern portions of Metro Vancouver, but really another system is right on deck by Tuesday night. We're back into it and we'll continue to see that rainfall. Again, uh, highlighting the fact that we are still expecting those snow for the mountain passes despite it being milder. Uh, there's your forecast for the region. We are going to see temperatures in the interior uh, up to about four or five degrees. We're expecting eight or nine degrees across the south coast region. Yes, periods of rain, but the bulk of it for tomorrow will be in the morning. In the afternoon, it doesn't look too bad. We're still expecting showers, but it's not that rainfall that we saw today. Late though, Tuesday, right into Wednesday though, we're back into periods of rain. And that is a look at your January forecast. Very typical for this time of year. Tonight's central windows weather window comes to you from Forest Grove, which is in the Caribou. Sherry captured this. She said that they uh, have, um, uh, the, they run this uh, company where they you can go uh, dog sledding and the dogs are healthy and they were loving the new snow that they had last week. I bet they were. It's fun for them. Going for a good run. All right. Thanks, Christy. Squire's here now. Chicago's in town, but no Connor Bedard. Unfortunately, it was going to be a great night, and then he broke his jaw. <laughs> Not his fault, but that's what happened. And on paper, the Canucks should beat Chicago tonight. They are a much, much better team. But Rick Tockett's message to the players is never believe your own hype. I mean, that there, there should be no reason to to think we're anybody in the f fact that I don't care if we're in first place or not. As we just said, the Hawks unfortunately won't have Connor Bedard, who was hurt, but the Canucks also have lost Carson Soucy to injury as well. All right, thank you, Squire. Also tonight, conquering the Atlantic one stroke at a time, the BC women who spent more than a month in a rowboat to pull it off. who BC starts their morning with. The fact that they tune into us means I think that we're doing a good job. Viewers just want trustworthiness. They want us to be credible. Wake up to Global News Morning. Weekdays from 5 a.m. to 9 a.m. We are BC's News. All right, Squire is here now with a look at sports. Squire? Yes, the Blackhawks are visiting Rogers Arena tonight. Okay, this is not your dad's Blackhawks visit from back in the day when the Canucks and Chicago were bitter rivals, but this game tonight was going to be special because of Connor Bedard, except Bedard's jaw got broken. He's in no shape to play hockey right now. He's probably in no shape to even chew gum at the moment. So the Bedard homecoming is going to have to wait until next season. So here's Jay with more on tonight's game.
This was the one game that we all had circle on our calendar. Connor Bedard playing his first NHL game here in Vancouver. But unfortunately, Bedard is just one of the uh, many Blackhawks who are injured. Eight Blackhawk regulars are out of their lineup. Bedard did not travel to Vancouver as he continues to heal his broken jaw. Oh yeah, I think he really wanted to, to be here. He's, he's devastated not to be here and playing, uh, let alone just being here. But uh, you know what? He's on uh, uh, course just on the recovery. It's going to be probably at least six weeks. Uh, you know, I mean, it's it's bone settling. So even though he could wear, he's wearing a bubble in practice. He can't he can't exert yet. He's not supposed to clinch too hard and let let the bones heal. Uh, uh, with the, the surgery that they did. And uh, even wearing the, the shield, that's going to bang into your chin, right? So it's not going it, to, that's not going to, that's only going to help when his bones are healed. And that's timeline. And uh, so he, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's not happy he's not here. But uh, I know the guys were joking about uh, him this morning in the dress room, uh, you know, all in fun wishing he was here. But uh, uh, you know what? He's, He's going to do whatever he can to get back earlier, but it's, that's a doctor's decision. And uh, when they do, uh, you know, scans and, and X-rays to make sure that the bone is healed, then then that'll be the time to ramp up the the on ice stuff to get him ready. And, and he's he's an eager guy. He's going to do everything he can. So when he's ready to come back, he'll be ready to come back. Now, for the most part, the Vancouver Canucks have been very healthy this season, with the exception of Carson Soucy. Soucy blocked a shot back in early November and missed nearly two months due to that injury. Well, he's out of the lineup for the Canucks after suffering another injury. This time to his hand. Looks like he's going to be out of the lineup. For three to five weeks. Yeah, we've we've caught some breaks. Yeah, we've had some few injuries here and there. You know, Teddy at the beginning of the year and stuff, but fairly, you know, knock on wood. Yeah, and you know, some teams go through those stretches where they get a lot of injuries. We've been lucky, you know, and uh, like I said, uh, hopefully we can stay in good health. Um, it helps your depth. Canucks are coming off that 6-4 victory Saturday against the Toronto Maple Leafs. They gave up 46 shots on goal versus the Leafs. Thatcher Demko, 42 saves. He's going to start again tonight against the Chicago Blackhawks, who are 4-19-1 on the road. From Rogers Arena with your ringside report, Jay Janor, Global Sports. I'm a little surprised. I thought they might give Demko this one off. Anyway, after being kicked off the Chicago Blackhawks back in November, Corey Perry spent time dealing with alcohol abuse and mental health issues. Then he had to meet with NHL boss Gary Bettman to explain where he was at. And then he signed a one-year deal with the Edmonton Oilers, and he was practicing with the Oilers today. Those are the things that I've been working on. I've been working on uh, with people in, in the mental health field and, um, you know, in, in different fields. So it's, you know, it, it's been a, a long time to get back to this, to this spot. This was an opportunity to add a player that could make us better um, on and off the ice. He's, he's a great leader. Um, I love in the, you know, come playoff time, you think about blue paint goals and, uh, you know, greasy goals, and that's what Corey stands for. He's obviously won. He's been right there um, year after year, so um, brings a lot of experience, a lot of leadership, uh, a lot of those intangible qualities that... Um, you can't just teach, um, so you know, obviously a really good, you know, great offense. Canucks went into tonight with 66 points. Boston 65, Winnipeg 64. Boston playing Winnipeg in Boston. Vladislav Nemetsnikov, deflection goal. It's 1-1, but then it was 2-1 Boston, and this is a shorthanded goal by Jake DeBrusque. The Bruins have won five in a row, so at the moment they are one point above Vancouver for top spot overall. That could change, of course, tonight. Whitecaps against 
Puska's Academia of the Hungarian First Division. Demir Krylak with a chance here. This, of course, is exhibition action over in Spain, part of the Whitecaps preparations for the coming season. And then uh, Elliot Goldthorpe, who Vancouver picked up in the draft, has a chance, doesn't connect. And then Puska scored two goals late in the game. This guy's so far away, I can't even tell you who it is. I just know he's not a white cap. So 2 nothing was the final <laughs> for Puska's Academia. There you go. Uh, that's all we need to know anyway. That's Thanks. all you need to know. Thanks, Claire. Puska's Academia mm -hmm. rolls off the tongue. Up next, the BC women who just completed the world's toughest row. From breaking news to developing stories, no one connects you to your community better than BC's number one news. Come home to the team you trust. Global News Hour at 6. We are BC's News. Jordan Armstrong is standing by in the newsroom with a preview of what's coming up on Global News at 11, including more on the breaking news we had at the top of the hour. Jordan. That's right, Chris. We are following that helicopter crash north of Terrace. A heliskiing aircraft with up to eight people on board has gone down. We're hearing now that there are fatalities and at this hour working to confirm how many. Plus a look at how the evening commute has gone for people coping with day one of the bus strike. Some had to get creative to get home tonight and we'll have their stories at 11. Chris. All right. Could be a challenge tomorrow as well. Jordan, thank you very much. An all-women crew is back on land after completing a grueling journey across the Atlantic in a rowboat. The group of marine biologists rowed non-stop for 5,000 kilometers. And as Kylie Stanton reports, they gained a new appreciation for the ocean they're trying to protect. Loving, loving this mysterious. It took four women an estimated one and a half million strokes, day in, day out, to finally be able to say this. I'm at Galleon Beach in Antigua. It took us 38 days and I can't remember how many hours. 38 days, 18 hours and 56 minutes to be exact. A lot of numbers, one big achievement. It's just one of one of the happiest moments I've ever experienced. Lauren Shea and Isabel Cote, both from BC, along with crewmates Chantel Beijin and Noelle Helder, took part in this year's World's Toughest Row. After three years of training, the team set out December 13th from the Canary Islands, rowing non-stop and without support. In an eight-and-a-half-meter rowboat, they made the 5,000-kilometer journey, burning 5,000 calories per person per day, raising a total of $252,000 in the name of ocean conservation. It's a really great platform and you can make a really awesome campaign out of your, your race. And they earned every penny, rowing in pairs for two-hour shifts with only a bucket on board for bathroom breaks. So it's not very glamorous, but uh, it's very simple. <laughs> like these waves, there were some highs. Happy New Year! And lows. We had a shark come up behind us and it ran into our rudder multiple times. We were like, oh no. Things are about to change. This is really bad. But the team stayed the course. And on the night of January 20th, the finish line was in sight. Finally crossing it, a feeling like no other. You hear all of your friends and family shouting for you and shouting your name. And that is like pretty emotional. The team ended up coming first in the women's class. But while this trophy will sit on a shelf, the perspective the journey has given the crew is something they'll carry with them 
forever. There's no way around it. You just have to go through it. And I just did this thing that was really hard. And, and now I'm here and I'm fine. And like, it's awesome. Kylie Stanton, Global News. What do you do next, though? It's hard to beat, isn't yeah. it? That's quite a challenge. <laughs> mm-hmm. We lost Squire at Bucket. Yeah, he said, no way. <laughs> I'm out. Like, yeah, it's, you know, I might, you know, I might agree to roll across the ocean, but not if there's just a bucket for a bathroom. <laughs> Needs to be a luxurious <laughs> loo aboard. Yeah, yeah. All uh, right. Uh, Christy, final word on weather. Yeah, and so for you, it's the the thought of missing New Year's Eve, I think. Me too, though, really. We are expecting uh, near-seasonal values all week long. It's going to feel like January, everyone, in Vancouver. Yes, rain on and off. Hopefully some breaks before dinner time tomorrow, but it's going to be few and far between. Cannot wait to see the sun again. I hope it pops through tomorrow for sure. All right, thanks very much, Christy. Thanks, everybody, for watching. Have a great night. Good night, all.